Turn, if you would, to the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew. We were actually planning on coming to the dinner on Friday night, and then we're told that my daughter's play was on Friday night in Temple. My daughter's a theater teacher, and so we went and saw the complete works of William Shakespeare in 70 minutes. Lots of them were just the king getting killed and they dragging him off, and that was the play. We continue working through the book of Matthew. We started chapter 10 a couple of weeks ago. I had uh, hoped to finish it last week. I didn't. So we're going to kind of hurry through the end of chapter 10 and move on to chapter 11. Jesus calls his apostles. He gives them instructions to go out to the nation of Israel, to the lost sheep of Israel, and preach the gospel. He tells them to do this. He then empowers them by giving them the same power that he had. But he tells them that things aren't going to be good. You're going to be persecuted. You are going to be dragged before the governor. You are going to be beaten. All of these bad things. And in addition to that, members of your own family are going to turn on you because you accepted Christ. And that's kind of where we ended up last week. If you remember in verse 34... Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring not peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against a mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. You're a good Jewish family and one of your children becomes a Christian and the good Jewish family has to throw them out. It should not surprise you. What this chapter is telling us is that as we do the work of God, it should not surprise us that things go badly at times. Some will respond positively to the gospel. Some will respond horribly to the gospel. We'll have a little more discussion about that in just a moment because we're going to talk about John. And John chapter 1 tells us that the light, Jesus, came into the world and the darkness the darkness of the world, hated it and fought against it. So it should not surprise us when bad things happen as we share the gospel. We get down to verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That was kind of the conclusion of last week's lesson. This paradox, if you will, that as you give up your life for Christ and his work, you will receive life everlasting. There's a paradox there because we are told how to pursue life in this life. We are told how we ought to live our life. And Jesus is saying, put that aside, die to that, and I will give you life everlasting. So quickly for verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Remember, he sent the apostles into the communities. He didn't tell them to stay at the local hotel. There weren't any local hotels, but that's beside the point. What he did was tell them to find somebody worthy in the community and go stay at their house. 
And if the person is worthy, great. What does it mean to be worthy? It means that you're open and responsive to the gospel. And what he's telling us here is that as the people come to our community, as the missionaries come and we support them, we are receiving the reward that they receive because we're helping the ministry. If you receive the one that Christ sends, you are receiving Christ. If you are receiving Christ, you are receiving God. And that's the connection. What is this telling us? It's telling us that not necessarily all of us are going to go, but all of us are called to participate. All of us are called to participate, and when we participate, we receive the reward like those who actually go to the mission field. So, that's the end of chapter 10. Chapter 11. If you will, jump over to John chapter 1. Verse 6 of chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, we remind ourselves that this John is not the John writing the gospel, right? John the Apostle wrote the gospel. That's whose name is at the top of the page. This is John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. We left John about 30 weeks ago. So we need to remind ourselves who he is. He is Jesus' what? Cousin? And he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He called the people to repentance. He is, was, the person sent to prepare the way. In ancient times, if the king was going to come to a particular location, there would be people that would come as the advance team. If it was the king, they would actually come to the local villages and they would require them to clean up the roads, remove the bumps, smooth them out so the king would not be jostled as he works his way through the community. They would come and they would proclaim, the king is coming, get ready so that all the community could be out to welcome the king. That's who John the Baptist is. He was the one that was sent to prepare the way. And if you remember, the scribes and Pharisees came to him, as they also came to Jesus, and they said, what are you doing? And John, not being the most sophisticated person in the world, tells them they're a brood of vipers and they're doomed. Just saying. But the people loved him. The people followed him. The people repented. The people were baptized. The people were preparing their hearts for the coming of the king. And then you know that Jesus showed up. Now, I suspect, we don't really know how many encounters Jesus and John had had growing up. They were cousins, but they weren't necessarily next-door neighbors. So they may have seen each other a lot. They may have seen each other a few times. Who knows? I believe, though, that on this particular occasion, the Holy Spirit told John who Jesus really was. And John proclaimed, 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says to John, baptize me. And John says, you're nuts. I need to baptize you? I mean, any of y'all could use a good dunking. Why? Because we're sinners. We know that. What was John preaching? Repent. What did Jesus need to repent of? Nothing. John says, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no. Let's do this so that we can show the people that I too am doing what needs to be done. I am living a life of obedience. So John says, great. Takes him out, dunks him. And here this dove, the Holy Spirit, is seen. And this voice from heaven says, Behold my son. You do what he tells you to do. That's a loose translation. I am well pleased with him. So John is doing his thing. John has his disciples. Jesus starts doing his thing. What is his thing? It looks a whole lot like John's thing. Preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But I told you, John's not the most sophisticated guy in the world, right? John meddles in politics, and he shouldn't do that, right? The king, Herod, had taken his brother's wife, because she was hot, and he took her. And John the Baptist says, you can't do that. You can't take your brother's wife. Why not? I'm the king. So the king had John the Baptist locked up. And that was about six chapters ago. But for us, about 30 lessons ago. (laughs) So John is in prison. And we pick up the story in chapter 11, verse 1. Then Jesus had, when Jesus had finished his, instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. The picture is we finished chapter 10. He told them what to do. They went that way, and he went this way. He's going to go preach the gospel message. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John is in prison. Let's just suffice it to say, things are not working out the way John had hoped they would. He is in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you the right one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the guy that we're waiting for? Or is there another one? Now, Why did he ask this question? There's two big answers to it that are probably both very acceptable. I like the second one, but most people like the first one. So we'll start with the first one. You have to accept the fact, right? John the Baptist is in prison. What are you going to do in prison? You're going to think. What are you going to think? My life is messed up. I'm in prison. It would be quite natural for you to start questioning things when things don't work out the way you expected them to. There are those who believe that John the Baptist was legitimately having doubts about who Jesus was while he was in prison, and John just wanted to make sure. Now remember, John had heard the voice of God saying, This is my son. 
But prison does things to people. And it's not just prison. It's life. When life doesn't give you what you expect, you begin to question the presuppositions that, at, upon which you have built your life. You begin to think, really? Your relationships aren't working out. Your children's relationships aren't working out. Your friendships aren't working out. You're just not where you want to be in life. And all of a sudden you go, God, you promised me such great things. And this is what I get? It would be quite understanding for us to begin to question whether or not Jesus was the guy that John was waiting for. In the last year, I've had heard two sermons about doubt, and both of them used this passage as their reference. Now, my problem with that is that our society today loves doubt. We are a postmodern society that does not believe in absolute truth, so we have elevated doubt to a virtue. The fact that you doubt everything shows that you're a good relativist. You're not one of those folks that believes in absolute truth. One of them. While I believe, and I believe this because I talk to people, and I believe it because I know myself, doubts are part of life. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just a personality thing. On any given day, I can doubt a lot of stuff. I really can. But I don't necessarily view that as a virtue. It's a reality of living in a fallen world where things just don't look the way they should. So one option is that John is legitimately doubting whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And if you read more modern commentaries, that's the position they'll take. And as I said, I think you can get that from the passage. But the second option is that John, who knows he's going to die... On top of everything else, he's a prophet, okay? <laughs> Bad news when you're the guy being profited about. He knows he's going to die, and he's got this group of disciples. What is he going to do with them? He could tell them, when I die, go to Jesus. Or he could prepare them by sending them to Jesus right now. So John says, I've got this great plan. Go ask that guy over there, that guy named Jesus, if he's the one we're waiting for. Because he wanted his disciples to be prepared for what he knew was going to happen. So, they came to prepare the disciples for what was going to happen to John. Two answers I'll let you pick which one you like. Okay? They show up. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? By the way, I might add, this is a great question. This is a great question. As we are traveling through life, we need to know, is Jesus the one, 
Or is there another one? We need to have an answer to this question. Don't act like this question doesn't make sense. This is the only question in life that matters. Are you the one, Jesus, who is going to save us, or should we go find plan B? Or, in our society today, plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. That is the society that we live in. And Jesus answered them. Now, at this point, if I'm Jesus, I'm going, are you nuts? You were there when I... Voice, angel, I mean voice, Holy Spirit, all that happened. You were there. Don't you know? Don't you know I'm the guy? Haven't you heard the reports? Haven't you, I mean, John, grow a backbone. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. There's really no theological discussion here. Okay? It's purely look. Open your eyes and see what's happening. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Let's stop right there. You go to the book of Isaiah and you look for a checklist of what the Messiah is going to do. Okay, this is the checklist. I need somebody who is going to allow the blind to see. Okay, scribes and Pharisees. Okay, people. How many of you have succeeded at this? None. I've done that. Check. I need somebody who can cause those that have leprosy to be cleansed, to be cured. Okay, scribes and Pharisees. Okay, false prophets. How many of you have done that? Crickets chirping. No one. I did that. Check. 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 How many of you have raised people from the dead? No response. I did that. Check. Jesus does not give John's disciples a long discourse on what it means to be the Messiah. He could have. He could have done a great job. Remember, he's going to get over on the, what, the road to Emmaus after he's resurrected, and he's going to take the whole Old Testament and explain the whole thing to him in light of Jesus Christ. Great sermon. Wish we had it. He could have done that. But all he did was, come here. See this guy? He's blind. Now he's not. See this guy? He had leprosy. Now he doesn't. See this guy? He was dead. They were having a funeral. Guess what? Here, I guess in this case, she is. That's the one we've covered so far. That is the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. I do think it's interesting, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, when we talk about poor, when we talk about poverty, there's two answers in the Scripture. One, those who are 
without resources. They have no money. They're poor. And Jesus goes to the poor and says, you are welcome into the kingdom. You see, we have this mentality that God wants the best people in the kingdom, and so he's going to take what? The top 10% of society or something? No. No. He goes to those that the scribes and Pharisees are not spending any time with, and he says, come, I will share the gospel with you. Come and follow me. If we look at the apostles, Matthew himself was probably well off. He was a tax collector. He was well off under very dubious circumstances, but he was well off. A lot of these other guys, nope, not that well off. So we talk about poverty being a lack of material resources. But going back to the Beatitudes, we saw blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who acknowledge the fact that spiritually they are bankrupt. Spiritually, they have no way of getting into the kingdom of heaven. They can't do it. Once again, the scribes and Pharisees are sitting around the south side of the circle. They've got all the right stuff. They've got their credentials. They've got the degrees. They've got the acclaim of society that they are the most righteous people there is. And the rest of them are just sitting there going, I can't do it. I can't be as good as that Pharisee over there. I can't do those things things that society says I have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven. I just can't do it. And Jesus comes to those people and he preaches the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news. Once you acknowledge, blessed are the poor in spirit, once you have acknowledged that you don't have the resources, then and only then are the doors of the kingdom open to you. Not before, then. Wow. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's a strange sentence. Why did he add that? Jesus, are you the one? Or should we wait for somebody else? Great question. Jesus says, come with me. Blind guy, not blind. Leper, not leper. Lame, not lame. Dead, not dead. The gospel preached. Don't be embarrassed. Don't what? The one who is not offended. Why would you be offended by Jesus Christ? You might be embarrassed by him. You might not want people to know that you're on his team. We're going to get there in a little while. Well, relatively speaking. You remember... The cock crows a couple of times, and Peter says, heck, I don't know him. Why? He was offended. He was embarrassed. He was concerned that people would know. And Jesus tells John's disciples, blessed is the one who's not offended. Now, is he condemning John for being offended? I don't think so. But he's telling the disciples, be ready. The time's going to come, and you're either going to come join me, or you're just going to go back to whatever it was you were doing before John showed up. Don't be offended by me. Why? Here's the checklist. 
check, 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 check. And I did all of that. As they went away, that would be John's disciples. They got the answer they wanted. They wanted to know, was this the guy? Was this the Messiah? And the answer was yes. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Okay? So you had this picture. There's this group of people. You know, we're having this classroom today. And in walk some disciples of John. And they say, excuse me, don't want to interrupt, but I've got a quick question. John wants to know if you're the Messiah. And I answer the question. I give them examples. I, okay. And they go, okay, thanks. And they walk out the door. Then Jesus turns back to the crowd to talk to them about John. Okay? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Remember? John was out in the boondocks. The sophisticated people were in the cities. The people would go out of the cities to see John the Baptist. We can have a whole discussion about life in the wilderness. We won't do that today. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Why did you go? What did you expect to see when you went to look at John? I mean, a certain amount is like a novelty, right? Let's go look at the crazy guy out in the wilderness. Why did you go? What were you expecting? A reed shaken by the wind? Huh. What does that mean? You take a piece of straw, and you've got a strong wind. Which way is the wind blowing? I don't know, but whichever way the wind's blowing, that's where the straw is going to go, right? You throw the straw up, and it goes to the right. Next day, you throw it up, and it goes to the left. You throw it up, and it goes that way. You throw it up, and it goes this way. Is that what you were expecting to see? Somebody that's just being blown in the wind? Whichever way the wind of society is going at that point in time, is that what you expected to see? (laughs) Not from John. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Did you go out there to see somebody that was well-dressed in their nice suits that they got at the nicest stores? What was John the Baptist wearing, by the way? Come on. Camel hair. How do you get camel hair? You take a camel, you kill it, you scrape all the blood off, and you put it over your shoulder. It isn't the best outfit. Why would you, who are so concerned about the things of this world, the material things of this world, why would you go out to see a guy dressed in the skin of a camel? Why would you do? Why were you going? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Is that what you wanted to see? Did you think he was the Messiah? Did you think he was the king? What were you expecting? What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Is that what you went to see? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist.
What did you go to see? Now, without doing too much abuse to the language, let's just have a quick discussion. When you come to church, when you go out to be the church, what are you, what are you expecting to see? Are you expecting to see someone that just blows to the left as the wind blows or blows to the right as the wind blows or goes up or down or backwards or forward? Is that what you're expecting to see? Guess what? You can find a lot of those people out there today. In John the Baptist's time, you could see it. In the Old Testament time, you could see it. You know, we know about the real prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah... No, that's not a prophet. That's a book written by Jeremiah. But we also know in the Scriptures that while Jeremiah was being God's prophet to the people, there were lots of other prophets that were telling the king, Oh, ignore Jeremiah. Things are all going to be great. It's going to be perfect. Don't worry about those armies outside. God will take care of you. And the wind blew this way, and they followed that. And the wind blew this way, and they followed that. Is that what you expected to see? Is that what you expect to hear when you come to church? You can find them. Did you expect material success? Is that why you followed after Christ? I mean, let's face it. There's some nice clothes out there. Don't you want some? Sure, why not? Follow that. Is that what you expected to see? No. What you saw when you went out to see John was you saw a prophet proclaiming the word of God. And what was the word of God? The king is coming and all I'm here to do is to sweep the road in front of him. I'm the one who has come to tell you to be ready because the king is coming. One of the most fabulous verses is when John's disciples complain to John, don't you know that your people are leaving you to go after this upstart? And what does John say? He must increase and I must decrease. John knew his place. He was not the Messiah. And he knew it. He was the voice I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. That's who John was. He was simply preparing the way. What are we supposed to do? We are to share the gospel and prepare people to receive the gospel. We've had this discussion in here numerous, numerous times. You and I are not going to save anybody. But for some unknown reason, God has chosen to send us to sweep the road before the Messiah comes. And that's what we're supposed to do. So Jesus tells the crowd, this is the crowd that he was talking to before the disciples showed up. He tells them, there is no one born of woman today who is greater than John. John was obedient God. Wait a minute. If you made your list of the hundred most influential, powerful, whatever 
category you wanted to use of people in the world, guess what? John would probably not be on that list. He wouldn't. He's an upstart out in the wilderness, for heaven's sakes. He's not even in the city where the real action is. He's just living out there in the countryside. He's dunking people in a river, and he's yelling and screaming. Ah, he wouldn't be on the list. But what's God's criteria? You're going to do what God tells you to do, or you're not. And that's it. We judge people by externals all the time. Primarily because that's all we see. I've told you in here before, right? I've got this vision that somewhere there's an old lady praying and she's holding the universe together. And we're going to get to heaven. And here's going to be Billy Graham. Oh, he's, oh, he's so good. I mean, he did what God told him to do. And here's going to be this old lady who you never heard about. And you're going to spend eternity learning about the people who you never heard about, who did what God told them to do, and were faithful. That's all God wants. Whatever it is God's told you to do. What did you expect to see of all the people born of woman? There's not been one greater. But here comes a really strange sentence. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wait a minute. He just went from top dog to bottom dog. In two sentences. But let's look at what, at where we're talking about. Here we are in this world today. Sometimes we have good days. Sometimes we have bad days. Sometimes we have great dinners. Some days we're thrown into prison. You're going to go today, have a great lunch. It's going to be great. You're going to like it. But we could go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and say, everything that is under this sun, vanity of vanities. Why? I hate to break the news to you, but you're still a sinner. You still do what you want to do when you want to do it. You still get mad when you shouldn't get mad. You still fill in the blank. You're still a human being living in a fallen world with the remnants of a sin nature. But there's going to come a time when you cross out of this world into the actual kingdom of heaven. We're talking actual heaven. And that last piece of sin is going to be torn out of your body and left behind. And at that point, you will have no remnant of sin left in your life. And guess what? The smallest person over here has a greater life than the greatest person of those of us living under the sun. It's the promise. It's the promise that the kingdom of heaven is going to deal with the remnant of sin in our lives. And that will be the greatest thing ever. So, 
of people on this world, John is top dog. But when we get to heaven, he's going to be another sinner, saved by grace, worshiping God for all eternity. And guess what? That's okay. That's a good thing. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Can somebody explain what this verse means to me? Let's take it at the end and work our way backwards, okay? If you can understand it, he is the Elijah that is to come. Go back over to the Old Testament. The Messiah is coming. Throughout the Old Testament, you see the Messiah is coming. But before the Messiah comes, Elijah is going to show back up again. You remember Elijah, right? Elijah, Old Testament prophet. Woe is me. Life's good. Kill off all the yeah, prophets of Baal, all that stuff. He gets old. He says, I'm ready to die. God says, you're not going to die. I'm sending a chariot, taking you home. Elijah, and then his servant, Elisha. J-S, alphabetical order. That's the only way I ever remember it. Elijah takes over as the prophet. Elijah didn't die. Remember, he's going to show up on the mountain of transfiguration later. And the prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, Elijah is going to come and prepare the way. Now, does that mean physical Elijah? Or does it mean somebody coming in the spirit of Elijah? Okay, and Jesus is saying, if you can accept this, that's the guy. He's the guy that's preparing the way for me. Now, they had asked John, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Now, was he wrong? Was he just not told? That's quite possible. You know, we talk about, you know, the Bible is totally true. It is, by the way. But if somebody doesn't know and they say it, then they don't know, okay? It's a truthful account of what John said. My understanding, John the Baptist was too humble to say, yeah, I'm Elijah, yeah, I'm the guy. No. Jesus said, John is coming in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Hmm, what does that mean? Go back to the Old Testament and you start reading the prophets. Well, you can go back to the Garden of Eden. If you want to go all the way back, okay? God is dealing with the aftermath of the disobedience of humanity. And he tells Satan, you're going to snap at the child's heel and he's going to crush your head and all that. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. You can go back to the Old Testament and you can work through all of the prophecies regarding the Messiah. The Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming. And John the Baptist shows up and says, he's here. Everything's been preparing for John the Baptist to say, the Messiah is here. Deal with it. 
And if you're willing to accept, he is the Elijah who is to come. But then we have this other strange sentence. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Who are the violent taking the kingdom by force? I'll give you two choices. Satan who was thrown out? Answer number one. Answer number two. Who has answer number two? Y'all are scared to say answer number two. If you look at a lot of commentaries, they will talk about the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders violently attacking the church, both before before this, back in the Old Testament, as the truth was proclaimed, violence attacked the church, the community of believers. If only I can deal with Jesus and get him off the stage, we can go back to living our good, helpful, uh, our good lives without this interference. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, we have to accept the fact that violence will come. Violent people will attempt to overthrow the kingdom of God. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. It's not going to work. Just a little secret. They thought, they were convinced that the day that they stuck him up on a cross, we won. It was a tough fight, but we made it. And all they did was prepare the way for Jesus to take away the sins of the world. That's what they did. That's probably the right interpretation of this passage. I'm going to go with that one. But just to let you know, I've got a nice book on my shelf written by some great Puritan writer who believes that the violent are us. What is he saying? Well, in modern terms, he's saying you can't sit at home in your lazy boy chair and expect to get into the kingdom of heaven. You have to go after it. For him, the word violence here has the connotation of passion, energy, strength. I am working. But isn't it all by grace? Yes. And we are told to seize hold of it. To me, it's an interesting interpretation. I don't really buy it because I think the word violent means violent. But that's just me. What is he saying? The kingdom of heaven is advancing. There is this march of history. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. People fell God started preparing for Christ to come save people from their sins. God sent prophets who proclaimed, and the enemy sent people who attacked the prophets. For every prophet, there was somebody that wanted to kill him. For every prophet, there was a false prophet telling him something else. And they were trying to stop the kingdom of heaven as it marched forward. Back to chapter 10. What did Jesus tell the apostles their reception was going to be when they preached the gospel. Violence. 
energy expended against them. Why does he tell us this? So we won't be surprised. I keep saying that, but you know what? We're still surprised. I share this gospel with somebody, and they don't just say no. They laugh at me. That's embarrassing. I run back to my closet, and I hide in my closet, and I want to become a recluse, and I'm not coming out again. They said something bad about me. And Jesus says, yeah, me too. Now get back out there. Why does it shock us that the enemy is at work to stop the kingdom from persevering? Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. The good side wins. John the Baptist in a few more chapters, is going to be killed. It's a spoiler, I'll just tell you. He's going to be killed. Among women, there was, among those born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist and some upstart king slash governor slash whatever he was got ticked off at him because he took his brother's wife and John didn't like it and let's, I mean, and he chops his head off. That doesn't sound very fair. That was last week's sermon, by the way. That doesn't sound right. But guess what? The greatest born from women, from woman, is now in heaven having his reward for being obedient to do what God told him to do. If you could, go ask John the Baptist, did you lose? John would laugh at you. Why? He won. Jesus is preparing John's disciples, he's preparing his disciples, and he's preparing us to live in the real world. Not some fantasy world, not some world that we'd like to live in, that we could write a nice novel about how everybody loves each other. The real world, where John came into the world to speak to the darkness, and the darkness hated him, the darkness hated the light, and the darkness fought back. But to what shall I compare this generation is like a child sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Society plays its happy music and you don't sing along? Society plays its dirge, its funeral music, and you're not sad? What are you? You sit there and you fast and you abstain from any kind of alcoholic beverage. You are just 
bread and water kind of guy when you're eating. And they say, you're crazy. You're a lunatic. You eat good meals. And they say, ah, you're just a glutton. What is the point of all of this? You're not going to get it right. We want to believe we can do something that society will say, okay, you're okay. I know you're proclaiming the gospel, and I know you love Jesus Christ, but you're okay. I want to find that happy medium. And guess what? It doesn't exist. Society wants you to follow their music. That's what this example is. They say, march this way, and we march this way. They say, oh, turn around and march this way, and we march that way. That's what society wants us to do. But when we stop and say no, the gospel is still there. The reality of sin is still there. The nature of this world apart from Christ is still there. The world is going to attack us. They're going to say things about us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you feast. It doesn't matter whether you fast. They're going to find something bad to say about you. It's the world we live in. What did you expect to see when you went out to look to John? Did you expect to see a piece of straw going back and forth in the wind? And Jesus says, that's not what you saw. You saw a prophet proclaiming the word of God, and the word of God stands forever. What does this mean to us? What's the application of all this? Tomorrow, there's going to be a pressure to move this way. Whatever that way is, by the way. Or this way. Or that way. And we can have a long discussion about this. Maybe someday we will. Because Paul does say, I become all things to all men that I might save some. You know, if society wants you to wear blue clothes, wear blue clothes. And if they want you to wear whatever. But if society tells you to deny Christ, to pretend that plan B, C, D, E, F, G, etc., etc., actually work, then we have to say no. We have to say no. And that's what John did. And John died, and John won. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of John. Thank you for the mission of John, preparing the way for the Messiah. I pray, Lord, that we too would stand firm in your truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.